Hi, I'm Kat. And I'm Emma. If you love the Dead Prank podcast, you can help support its future using the ACAST supporter feature. Now, it's up to you how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So if you can and you want to, please do hit the link in the show description to support now. Thank you. Thank you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. and welcome back to another episode of the Dead Crying Club podcast and today we are joined by the lovely Stacey Heal who's going to talk to us all about what life is like being the parent who has to kind of carry on after the other parent has unfortunately passed away and I think this is something that we really wanted to cover because it kind of shows a different angle of grief that we haven't talked about before and I think we've talked so much about our own experiences but actually how that resonates with our surviving parent can be really difficult and also navigating that relationship with them and how that other parent then takes up the responsibilities that have been left behind. So we are super excited to have Stacey on the podcast today. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Stacey, thanks for joining us. No worries, Emma. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Before we get deep, which we like to do on the Dead Parent Club podcast, first up, how are you doing? How are you, Stacey? I am exceptionally hot, <laughs> as, oh. is, as is the entire, <laughs> entire country today. Um, but yeah, I've done nothing today except lie in front of a fan oh, uh, while my children are at school. So I've had the option to do that, which has been good. Oh, that does actually sound like bliss. I must point out as well, if you are watching us and you're wondering why on earth Kat is in a jumper (laughs) (laughs) in in about 100 years, it's because her aircon in her office is on full whack. So myself and Stacey are pretty envious of Kat right now, aren't we? Yes. Oh, I wish. You see me go from this to then being basically half naked and it's out when I go outside. <laughs> sort of sad. Oh, Kat, we love you. So, Stacey, let's go right back. Uh, for anyone listening who doesn't know your story, can you just share it with us, please? Yeah, sure. My husband, Greg Gilbert, um, he was a singer in the band Delays. And we had been together for 15 years. He was diagnosed with terminal bowel cancer in 2016, very out of the blue. He was diagnosed actually with stage four cancer. It didn't develop after an initial diagnosis. And we just kind of had to carry on living. We had we had two really small children. We had Dali, who was just about to turn three, and he was actually diagnosed on our daughter Bay's first birthday. So we had really, really little kids who didn't understand anything. That was like a this weird double-edged sword because in some ways it was good that they didn't 
that we that we could go through the motions of what needed to happen with treatment and trying to come to terms with stuff and they didn't understand anything they were proper proper babies mm. but at the same time it was so hard because you're having to do like the wake up you know I was breastfeeding still I was doing the the night feeds and all all the baby stuff whilst trying to take on board what was happening and and obviously support Greg deal with oncologists deal deal with his treatment um and so Greg died uh nearly five years after his diagnosis which was um weird to say but I think maybe people in our kind of situation kind of get it of like that was good (laughs) like for him to have been diagnosed so late for him to get to nearly five years um uh, I'm glad you know that we had those five years but he yeah he died late last year and so me and the girls have been a little team of three for 10 is it 10 months yeah 10 months I think I absolutely commend the fact that you're talking so openly about all of this so soon after because I think we all know that there's like a lack of of knowledge and understanding and acceptance of all those different kind of elements of grief and I think to have somebody that's actively going through it and actively talking about it at the same time is just amazing so yeah I mean thank you <laughs> <laughs> uh, well it's um to be honest I started talking really openly and publicly about this stuff probably oh, I don't know maybe five years ago when I was looking for voices that were similar to my own where we went to some support groups that were to do with the hospital and everybody was in their 70s mm. and I I was 36 and had a baby with me so that was um a wake-up call of like where where are our people where are other people in our situation so I just started talking very openly about it to be the voice I suppose that I want that I needed at that time and then and then I found all these people that were going through the same thing or even not exactly the same but that idea of grief and losing people and anticipatory grief that actually you start grieving before someone's died, if someone's been diagnosed with an illness. Um, yeah, so it, start, it started very selfishly. It was about me. It was all about how could I cope finding ways to deal with all of this pressure and like watching the person you love slowly deteriorate. And the fact that I can, that I can support that I can be a voice for other people is like a is a is a really lovely thing actually. I get a lot of comfort from that. It feels like there's something good to come out of this shit. <laughs> what were those five years like? Because obviously, like you said, Stacey, in terms of the prognosis and the amount of time that you had with Greg, it's great that you got those five years. But what were they like? Can you describe them? Like the emotions, how Greg was? Was it up and down and up and down? It's it's really hard to to describe what those are like when you've actually got like a knife hanging over you, and it's all like you're it's like you're carrying a bomb or like a grenade that's had the thing taken out of the top, and you're just waiting because no one's going to tell you how long you've how long you've got there's stats that kind of can give you an idea but so you're kind of just constantly waiting and then obviously there's things to do with scans looking at you know seeing if a treatment has worked waiting to see what's happened on a scan so I feel like there was this 
it's almost like waves of tension. There were times where you were building up to the end of treatment and finding out if it had worked and the the tension and the suspense would build and then it would kind of crash down because of like normal family life with the kids you know we still got to get up and do breakfast still got to do the school runs still got to go to the park so it was this pressure cooker surrounded by normality Mm. and it kind of the juxtaposition of the two together I think was probably the one of the hardest things and I I think that one of the things that I found that I don't know people talked a lot at the time about going oh well you know you you need to focus on making memories and this will bring you all closer together and I wouldn't have necessarily said that was true because mm. I think it's very hard to make memories in inverted commas when you are kind of underneath a microscope of like almost like remember this kids like, like remember this because this is the you know saying it in my head this is the only memory you're going to have of your dad and like orchestrating these like I did go through a period of orchestrating really elaborate things in order for to think that I was providing this memory that everyone was going to have and actually those things were the most stressful mm-hmm. Greg hated it because there was too much pressure the kids weren't really interested and I was just like an absolute bag of nerves just desperately wanting things to be perfect mm-hmm. when actually I would say the best memories we have now are probably just like Saturday Sunday mornings when they'd come in on the bed and we'd have a cup of coffee and the dog would be there and we'd just be playing stupid games and you know just really really normal things those are the best memories of those five years I've never heard somebody explain it so well that sort of pressure cooker whilst living normal life because that is oh. that is literally what it's what it's like it was like for me like you have this underlying thing where like this person is going to die I don't know when but it's going to happen but then reality and the world just keeps spinning I think yeah. it must have been really strange for you because your kids obviously didn't really understand what was going on. It's kind of two alternate realities at the same time where for them, they're kind of playing normal, happy families because this is all they know. Whereas for you, you're like, this isn't how this is supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, I, I felt like I lived, I, I had multiple lives. I had my, my life with my children as their mother. I had a life with Greg that was really intense and like super supportive with each other but at the same time we had very very different ways of dealing with things I wanted to talk about things all the time Greg wanted to talk about nothing Mm. and that often meant that I then went outside of our family like say to my family and my friends to talk about what was going on like the reality of things like what am I going to do when Greg dies what am I going to do with the house? What am I going to do about money? What do I do about a will? Like, there's Greg didn't want to talk about that stuff, mm. which was fu- I say that was fine. It was complicated. Yeah. Um, so then I'm having to kind of be in my own home, in my marriage, kind of like living a life which was like this kind of cheerleader cheering us all on and trying to keep keep the show on the on the road. And then I was having these conversations outside. So I felt like I was having kind of three separate lives all at the same time. 
And actually, I, I remember, and this will, this will sound like a very strange thing to say, I remember when Greg, when we were at the end and Greg was in the hospice and we were told that he had weeks to live and we had to tell our children that that was what was going to happen. It was singularly the worst moment of my life, definitely. Mm-hmm. But the relief I found that every single person in our little world was on the same page, that everyone acknowledged mm-hmm. what was going on, everyone, there was no denial anymore. It was, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. I felt there was so much relief on my part because mm-hmm. I felt, that I didn't have to juggle different people's expectations anymore. I didn't have to just be the face of positivity for certain people and break down in front of others. I could just be, just be how I felt. It's a, it's a hard thing. I think a terminal diagnosis is, is harrowing. Like for, for the people who are obviously experience, experiencing it, obviously, um, but to watch it happen and to know that you you then go on and and when you have children that is like a real driving factor that you're like i have to go on i have no choice mm. there's no choice and i have to go on and build build a life for these kids because this is this is trauma this is deep trauma in their childhood and the weight of that responsibility is enormous how did you tell the children, Stacey? Um, Greg told them, actually. Um, wow. We'd well, had... the first time that he had yeah. faced that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had tried to get him to do it before, um, but he wouldn't, and he didn't want me to do it either, so we were in a bit of a log ahead with each other about what was going to happen, and it was it was it was too much pressure. It was too, it was all of us struggling with what was happening. And then it all just became so obvious that we couldn't keep this up anymore. And um, they were at my in-laws house and Greg just said to me, just really quietly, he just said, go and get them. I'm going to tell them. And um, they came in and so um, they would be seven and five when we told them and oh it it was just uh I I felt like I was hovering above my own body like you're not even there you're kind of just watching it happen and I think as a parent to to deliver such a blow when you're really the you're you're supposed to be their protector you're supposed to do everything to protect them. And you, while it's not your fault, you're delivering this blow to them. And I saw something change in their eyes and that realisation of what it was. And I just felt, I'm just never going to see that child again. Not in the, not, not, not who they were before. And they dealt with it in really different ways. Our eldest daughter just wanted to be with Greg and hug him and just be with him and... But our youngest daughter started running around and um, was getting us all drinks. She was going in the fridge. She was like, I thought people would like some snacks because I know everyone's really upset. So um, she's five. She was five. 
and like oh. just then started trying to do like silly things to make us laugh because we were all so upset. Oh, yeah. Um, and then we had to take him back to the hospice um, and leave him there. And we drove home and like walking back into the house, it, the three of us, it just hit of like, this is, this is it, this is it. This is us now. I mean, obviously, yeah, he, he lived for another maybe six weeks after that. Um, but yeah, that realisation of like, now we're all on, on the same page. And now, even though I wanted it so much for them to know, for us to be able to deal with it because all you know all the advice says children need to be in the loop they Mm. need to they need to know what's happening in an age-appropriate way Mm. because they will I was really aware as the parent that was going to be left that they had to trust me over everybody else and if they felt that I had kept stuff from them and that I didn't deal with it in a way that was with them at the centre. I was aware that we would get to a point afterwards where they wouldn't trust me. And 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 actually, at the end, there was um, there was some different, you know, with me and Greg, differing opinions about things. And in the end, I I said to him, they they have to know, and I will I will veto you, um, which sounds exceptionally harsh like in the cold light of day talking about it but I was just it oh it's so hard to describe that that pressure cooker at the end where you're thinking the way I deal with this is going to have ramifications forever this is so enormous and I have to make the best decision well the best my ability obviously who knows I'm sure in time they will find that there will be ways that they have a problem with how I dealt with things or that how their dad dealt with things. I don't, who knows? Mm. I don't know. Give it 20 years (laughs) and I'll see. And I'll see what, uh, if they thought my decisions were good. I'll start their own podcast. But I think (laughs) 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 this is why I think it's, it's interesting because like, you know, you, you don't really get privy to these kind of conversations that your parents are having behind the scenes like I I didn't and you know it, was, it wasn't my mum that told me it was my dad that told me in the driveway and I think god that yeah. must have been for my mum to have been sat in that room and for me to have just walked in just hysterical yeah like how that must have been for my parents is just yeah it's it's horrific and I think I think a lot of people that listen to this right now will probably probably be like yeah. that must have been really hard it's really really hard to describe because I've never experienced anything that even comes close to it in terms of complexity to do with mm-hmm. I suppose maybe allegiances which sounds strange but um I had fought so hard to protect Greg to support him and make him as well as he could be mm-hmm. and then I realized that there was a point where the the girls then had to come above him. Yeah. Um, and that even carried on after, after he died, when it came to the funeral. Um, I had said immediately that the girls are coming to the funeral and that it was actually not even up for debate. Mm. Like, 
I, I set very, very clear boundary mm. with that. That um, and and it was I know it was discussed by other people that uh, about them coming and that people thought they shouldn't go. I I was but my thought I mean I'd I'd done a huge amount of research about like child psychology and I'd talked to Winston's Wish about there's loads and loads of research that talks about what children need to do to grieve and what I really wanted to do was think I need to not think about anyone else's opinion on this this is this again this is their their grieving process and they kind of come above everybody and this is their dad because I was like what how could you not go to your dad's funeral like that's madness and and it would be the kind of thing where that I could definitely imagine in 15 years time having an argument with my children they're both very argumentative they're both (laughs) wily wily little characters so I was just imagining them going and another thing why didn't you let us go to dad's funeral I'll never forgive you yeah and but what we did was try to make it very inclusive I was very nervous about people not talking to them because I just thought how terrifying for other adults to look at a small child of the person who's died and they like they can't cope with it I knew that would happen and I thought I don't want them to be ignored at their dad's funeral. That would be awful. I can I can remember, I think I was 17, I went to my grandpa's funeral and I there were so many people that I didn't know there. He was in his early 80s when he died. There was all of these people I didn't know from his life and I remember pretending to sleep on a sofa in this hotel in the wake and literally being livid with a coat over my head. This is when I was 17. Um, I remember just thinking, who the fuck are these people? This is my grandpa and I'm here and and all these people are just talking about him and he's my grandpa. Like, what? I remember just literally being under a coat, like like a five-year-old would be, but like literally an adult doing that. Um, And I thought about that and thought, I don't want that to be my children's experience that they are like because Greg was um well known we knew there was going to be a lot of people that came so I was really aware that I didn't want to be ignored so we organized it um so that we me and my sister-in-law and the girls and my niece all made cookies the day before hundreds of them boxed them up we ordered little stickers that said the Gilbert girls and in the in the music venue that we had the wake in where delays um used to do gigs in Southampton when they were kind of in their earlier years we um we made a massive sign and they sold all the cookies for for charity and so it was it was hilarious they were literally they turned into like they were like bartering like they're on a market stall. They were just because it was like they weren't they were just like donate what you want. And I just saw mm. them. They were literally stood on this bar kind of going, you've got a 20 there. Come on, give us your 20. Um, and it meant that there was it meant that there was interaction so that people were talking to them. And then they weren't when they then passed them later on in the night, they would talk to them. They yeah. it, it kind of took away that that wall that was between them and then they felt really com- 
they felt really comfortable. And in the end, we were there for, I don't know, seven hours the, the wake went on for. They were on, at the end, they were on the stage of this music venue dancing and they were offering offering out the um the drunk adults and so like I remember looking up at one point and seeing my girls kind of like doing the robot with like one of like the drunk aunties who's kind of like with a glass on the stage and what was so lovely about that was that so many people came up to me and said this has changed how I viewed funerals about it's a it of course it's for children of course, it's for for children. It's for them. They are they grieve as well. So they needed to go through that process of, you know, the crematorium and going through that element and seeing the process. Mm-hmm. And then you need the wake. You need the kind of that lift, don't you? To kind of that intensity just needs to dissipate a little bit, and then you can talk to people and have stories about the people and. And realise there's a celebration of that person's life as well. And of course, children should be involved in that. Because otherwise, you know, if you think about the pandemic, when people couldn't go to funerals in the pandemic, and how that has stunted people's grief. And they, and as, as you will know, that grief doesn't go away, does it? That, that grief gets stuck in you, and that will come out later on sideways in a way that you weren't expecting it's like another pressure cooker <laughs> basically yeah yeah absolutely yeah. I was just gonna ask Stacy, what have the last 10 months been like for you and the girls I would say the past 10 months have been oh people use the word roller coaster a lot don't they mm. <laughs> about, about things but it it truly has I think I think the first couple of months was shock even even though we knew Greg was going to die I was shocked at how shocked I was (laughs) I couldn't believe that I was so frozen by the whole thing and an unbelieving of what was happening Mm. so I think that did last for a couple of months and I think maybe at about six months I think things started to thaw a little bit, the reality of it. I think there's, it's like a self-preservation thing, isn't it? You're, you kind of, like, I, I don't really remember. I don't really remember any of it at, at all. Not, I mean, yeah. the whole 10 months. I, I couldn't really tell you what happened in any of it. Um, mm. I think it's been very, very much about survival. I, I feel like... In, in some ways, I was thinking about this only today. I privately thought to myself towards the end of the last couple of months of Greg's life that things would be easier when he had died. I know that sounds weird, but no. I was thinking, I mean, this is insanity. Like in terms of like the logistics of... Less complicated. <laughs> yeah, le- much less complicated of like, where are the girls? Oh, they go to different schools. They've got different activities, but where's Greg? Where's the appointment? Mm. Who's who's taking him where? Where is he going? Like, And having to deal with mm. just everything. So in my head, I just thought this would be easier. And I've been very, very shocked to find out that it's not mm-hmm. because... What I didn't expect was the brain fog or that it feels a bit like 
the only thing I could describe, I don't have a chronic illness, but what I've read of other people that have chronic illnesses, something like ME, something like that, where just this permanent exhaustion, permanent, just, I feel like I've lost brain cells. I really, in, in my, in my old life, before I gave up work to look after Greg, I was a university lecturer and I used to run a department. And now, honestly, I, I think I've done well if I just go and do the food shopping and, and I genuinely think that's it. That's all I can do today. It's yeah. yeah, That has been, that's been quite a shock. Um, I think my relationship with the girls is so many people said to me when Greg died, they were like, you're a tight triangle. Now it's just the three of you. You are going to, you, no one will break that bond. You are going to become so close to each other. And, and I'm early days. I know. And I'm sure you guys will have like lots of opinions about like how that works over time with, with parents who are left. Mm. And um, I find that really interesting actually to hear that. Um, But I think what actually has happened is mostly that we've been at each other's throats. (laughs) And I think that's probably to do with like three women in the house. All of us are quite, quite willful, (laughs) quite opinionated. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, it's that thing, isn't it? Of like stress. When things are stressful, you do take it out on each other. And so it hasn't, it hasn't necessarily been this time of like, let's get together girls and get on the sofa and let's read a book under a duvet and we'll all be together. It's actually been a lot of, a lot of us screaming at each other. I think that's an awful lot of pressure to put on a family. I really disagree when people say, oh, this whole thing is going to bring you closer. People say it all the time. Yeah, I really disagree with putting that pressure on people when it's happened because you think okay Mm. that person's died now we're going to be a really tight-knit bond straight away and we're going to help each other get through this when in reality it might not be the kids that help you get through it it's going to be your friends or different family members and I think it won't be until your children get older and they start asking more questions about it and I think I think it depends on just how that relationship grows as they get older will depend on how you guys are when when you know in like 10 years time mm. but I just think it's not a case of somebody dies and then people are like okay we're all going to get on really well and be there for each other all the time because you're right it is it's a stressful situation and you're kind of learning this new way of life to live with each other and that's what I found hardest was like I didn't have much of a relationship with my dad before my mum died and then suddenly I was like oh god I've got to figure out who this man is and yeah like, how do how do we communicate yeah. with each other without that person being there you're thrust into a totally new dynamic with other people who are also grieving in probably different ways to you. And then people yeah, going, absolutely. this is going to bring you closer together. Well, actually, no, because one person, like my sibling didn't want to talk about it or see photos. I was the total opposite. And then you're basically saying, but this is bringing you together. You are joined by this, joined by something we don't want to be joined by, actually. Thank you very much for your opinion. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sorry if this sounds almost too abrupt, Stacey, but do you feel lonely? Yes. Yes, definitely. I'm really lucky that I've got both mine and Greg's family really nearby. I'm really close to his family and we see each other all the time. And that's and that's really and that's really nice. Mm-hmm. Um I've got a really great group of friends. But <laughs> um I yeah, yeah, I am lonely and I, I I've only started to, I think really think about that maybe the past maybe two months. I think the, the the initial bit was just like, oh my God, he's dead. Oh my God, it's happened. Like the thing that we've been like gearing up for, gearing up for, now it's happened. Oh my fucking God. And it all seemed to happen really quickly. And then it was over and just trying to come to terms with that and just trying to find some equilibrium at home, some new routine. But now I think things, I miss... I miss having a companion. Yeah. I miss I miss having another ad- I miss having another adult in the house. I miss being able to have like an adult chat. Everything in our house is 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 child focused. I am responsible for everything. Um I would just love to have a chat at the end of the day about something funny that happened or talk about politics or something that I've seen on Instagram or something just like an adult chat about stuff and also I think because I'm thawing out I think I'm also very very much missing touch um, which Mm. people don't necessarily want to talk about especially that people don't like women talking about this Mm. I think Um, that actually it's that kind of that physical connection I mean it's it's yeah it's sex but it's also that kind of touch on your back as someone walks past you in the kitchen or just at night reading a book and just your feet touching. That kind of like easy companionship, which means you're not, which means you're not alone. Yeah, but I, uh, I'm not, I don't feel mentally in a place to start yeah. dating. Like I don't, yeah. I, I, I don't, yeah. I'm a bit like I've heard I've heard people because I now I now I now seem to know a lot of widows um young widows and I know some people that were dating at three months and there's no and I actually have no judgment about that whatsoever because it's the kind of thing of 
if you haven't been in the situation, you don't know. You just don't know. So you can't judge. It is such a strange, strange place to be. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I'm kind of in this position of feeling lonely, uh, but also thinking, oh my God, the thought of <laughs> what what that would entail. And, you know, me and Greg were together for 15 years. So I, I don't even know what that looks like. Did you ever talk about it with Greg? In a really, really roundabout way. We'd love to joke with each other. And that, do you know what? That's what I miss. That's what I miss is the, the banter with each other that we had that was constant. That was kind of our way of communicating with each other was just to try and just be stupid and make each other laugh. And we used to joke about, um, he used to like take the piss out of me talking about um, like thinking about my second husband, it would be a rich Italian surgeon or someone I get whisked off. Um, and I joke about what his, yeah, his, uh, his French artist girlfriend would come and they'd have like coffee and croissants in the morning. Like, so we would, we would always kind of joke about stupid things like that. And so it was always kind of, I know that he, we never talked about it specifically, but I remember at the very end, I said to him, he wasn't particularly cohesive, but I kind of wanted some kind of advice, maybe. I would, or like, you know, like advice from a deathbed of like, tell me, mm. you know, tell me the meaning of life because you're at the yeah. end of it, that, that kind of thing. And I just said, what should I do? Like, what, what am I going to do? And I was looking for something quite profound and deep. And he just went, Oh, you'll be all right. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time I was like, fucking hell. Is that it? Is that it? Is that all I get? 15 fucking years. And that's all I get. Yeah, you'll be fine. Um, But actually, actually, now I've had some time to really think on that. I've taken that as a really great compliment that he was like, I believe in you. I I, I believe that you will be okay. You will find ways to make this work. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think think him saying that shows that he definitely had faith, so much faith in you. Like there mustn't have been, I think it's probably seen the way that you had, taken control of that situation over the years prior like you basically were showing there and then that you could that you could do it and that you can do it which I think is probably the only proof that you need and that he needed at that time as well yeah how do you cope like what do you do when you're feeling like emotionally spent like when somebody else can kind of take the reins and take over the kids and you're like I just need half a day to myself or I just need an hour to to cool down what are your go-tos now to try and get through those situations because that must be unbelievably hard solo parenting is is hard like monumentally hard because mm-hmm. it's not just the practicalities of stuff it's also like the emotional stuff like the decisions to do there's there's no one to kind of properly who's as who's as invested as you in your children Mm. so to have that conversation with 
Um, luckily, I, I really pull in family to to have a lot of time with the girls, which is beneficial for everybody. It's not just about me having some time. It's about their relationships with each other as well, which I think is really good for the girls in particular because they get to really see that their family was bigger and that there's a big support network for them. Um, currently, I think I'm in survival mode of I just have like real go-to things that I do, which is sleep. I seem to never, ever stop sleeping. Mm. I'm like a little bear in winter. The moment I can, I go to bed. That is uh, my place. Um, I I have to kind of, uh, there's certain things that I can't do now. Like I can't watch TV really at all. My, my brain can't cope with it. I listen to podcasts like yours. I just zone out, I suppose. It, it's almost like that thing of everything I'm kind of giving and giving and doing and doing. And then when I'm on my own, I do just kind of go, there's just like this. And I suppose that's, that is like a coping mechanism, isn't it? Just to kind yeah. of shut down in order to carry on. Yeah. But I, I've been thinking over the past couple of days, actually, I don't know what's triggered this, but I thought to myself, I'm really looking forward to a time when I feel a bit more like I'm living and not surviving. Yeah. And I think that in itself is probably quite a big jump just to recognise it or that you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable with just just getting by. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm very, I must admit, I'm very hard on myself. I do know that. And people tell me that, that I am very, very hard on myself about like what I should be doing how much I'm giving to people I hope that with time Stacey you realize that actually you owe it to yourself at some point to enjoy your life you have spent years and years with anticipatory grief and then grief itself and bringing up children doing life dealing with everything going on around you and I really hope that that you do find that, that you do find that you are living, that one day it just creeps up on you and you go, mm-hmm. oh, I enjoyed that and this is fulfilling. Um, do the girls ask different questions, Stacey? Do they ask you, have their questions changed since their dad died at all? Yeah, they, ha- they have changed, I suppose. When, when Greg first, when we first told them that Greg was going to die, they had really, really childlike questions about it which was fascinating you couldn't make them up you genuinely couldn't make them up it was Mm. things like is dad gonna have another haircut um (laughs) uh what i think i think my youngest daughter said about if he's in a grave could we just have his head because then it would be a bit like we could still have him. His body could be in the ground. We could have his head and like we could take turns sleeping with it. So it's this, it's like this childlike way of like uh, trying to process something which is not processable really. Um, My old, uh, my oldest daughter said to me immediately, I never ever want you to get married again. That was one of her, very very big Ooh. first concerns and Ooh, she said I want you to, she was like I want you to promise me that you will never get married again what did you say 
uh, I I then went on some kind of like philosophical tangent of going, the thing is about the future. <laughs> no one knows. No one knows. what. No one can predict anything about anyone's life. No one knows. So you can, you must never promise anybody anything to do with the future because you will never, ever know. So I turned it into this like lesson. Well she, she's, she saw through the whole thing. She was like, yeah, but tell me you're not going to. And I was like, and also, yeah, it was, it, it's interesting, like through the eyes of a child and maybe, I don't know if you'll resonate with this, that they were saying to me, well, not, not my youngest, but so much. Well, no, actually, sorry, my youngest, I've just remembered actually, she was like, can we go and buy another dad? Oh. And I was like, no, that we can't do that. And she said that for a while of like, let's just go and get another one. Let's, why can't, why can't we just get another dad? Um, whereas my other daughter was like, absolutely not. I never, ever want you to have a boyfriend because they will hate me. They will hate us and they will take you away from us. And I was, I was furious with society at that point. Cause yeah. I was like that whole step parent idea. Yeah. It's all, and I was, I've never thought about it before because I've never needed to. My parents are still together. So I've never needed to think about it, but I just thought that that kind of like Disney idea of mm-hmm. the evil step parent that is going to come wow, in and never destroy the family. And that was one of her first concerns that someone was going to come in and take me away from them. And I, I did say to her, I can promise you, one thing I can promise you is that you two will always be my priority. Mm-hmm. I just, that's just a fact. That, and that would be a fact if your dad was there. Like, you are, you're my priority. They they ask a lot of questions about cancer as well. And again, cancer is a very difficult thing to explain to small children as well, because it, you're talking about cells that just go wrong in your body. Mm. And they've, they said, but why? Why did dad get it? And I'm like, well... Sometimes that just happens. And that's terrifying for a child. I mean, it's terrifying for an adult, to be honest, Mm -hmm. that you're talking about something that just just happens. So I think their hypervigilance is now kind of uh, very, like, off the chart, to be honest, of, like, looking out for ways that bad things can happen. And especially to do with me, like don't they're they're, they're terrified that that I will be that I will be ill, which which I understand, I get it, and that's my and that's my biggest fear is that something will happen to me. I think it's hard when you've when you've been exposed to the reality of what that's like. It kind of makes you realise how possible that is, and I think that's something that Emma and I can both attest to is that once you once one of your parents has died you are just a bit like shit like the other one could die at any point anybody that I love could die at any point and I'm gonna have to go yeah. through this grief all over again and that is terrifying and it's yeah. a weird thing to have to carry with you I think because you don't really get over that <laughs> no I think you kind of find yourself living in a state of high alert yeah no absolutely and I do as well I I'm in high alert as well of for me um, I'm really focused now on desperately trying to become healthier. 
Um, I think I went through a period the past 10 months really of eating what I like, drinking lots of alcohol, just to kind of numb out a little bit when Mm. things were difficult, especially at home, which was problematic. I think that became a bit of a problem. So now I'm not, I'm not having no alcohol at home and I'm just thinking I need to be, there's a pressure of thinking I've got, I've got to stay alive for these Mm. children and, and not even just when they're children, like, I, I I need to be here for them. I want to be in my eighties. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I suppose that's like maybe the kind of, it's interesting, like you guys talking a lot about like the dead, the dead parent um, and like how that affects you with your dynamic and, and how your alive parents will like negotiate that it's I I find that really interesting from from my perspective of Mm. thinking about the thing the kind of things you hide from your children Mm. because you even if they're grown up that things that you don't want to burden them with or you you know that dynamic is one of you are the elder so you don't want to dump your emotional stuff on your on your child however old they are I know that my like during Greg's five years of being ill, my mum went for a mammogram because she found a lump. My dad was taken to hospital with chest pains. No one told me any of this until afterwards because they, as my parents, they were like, we didn't want to worry you. Like you've got mm. enough going on. We didn't want to worry you. But then as, and I'm kind of like, but I needed to know that that's <laughs> like really important information. Um, but yeah, I think that kind of, that the weight of like being the parent and putting your child first, it can manifest in lots of different ways. Do you worry about the future, um, about how it might affect the girls and yourself in the future or how their questions might change or just life in general? How, how do you feel when you think about it? Like keep, keeping him alive, I think as well, you know, like, mm. like approaching that as they're getting oh. Um. Yeah, I I must admit I definitely do worry about it. I I worry about I worry about a, like some different things. One is him being um, becoming a martyr. Mm. I do really worry about that because so Greg was in a band. We did fundraising for him that we raised nearly a quarter of a million pounds because of his fan base. Mm. There were things that he did during his illness that he kind of just threw himself into. He was an artist. He had a book published of of poetry. He had an art exhibition with Da Vinci, like quite mind blowing things that Mm. don't generally just happen to people. And I think the fact that they're not going to really remember him either he's just going to be this like God in their mind. And yeah. And, and he wasn't, (laughs) he was, he was a norm. He was an incredible person. He was an exceptionally talented man. He was a wonderful, incredible person, but he had flaws. And I know that if he had lived, I know that all of their personalities, I'm very similar to the girls. Greg was almost kind of the odd one out in in temperament. I could see that if he had lived, 
they would have absolutely gone at each other in the teenagers. <laughs> I just I just know it. I know it. Um, but that they will grow up thinking of their dad in a certain way. Um, and I and I don't know how to temper that. Uh, and I worry, you know, thinking about them going on with relationships of their own, like, you know, if they're attracted to men, are they going to search out father figures? Um, yeah. Are they, is this going, yeah, is this going to affect them detrimentally in that, in that kind of way? Like, are they going to always feel lost? And I think that was one of the first things that really scared me about all of this was like, how is this going to affect them in their life because I know people talk about children being resilient and I fucking hate that because they're not resilient they're just young and what adults do is that they see children after a trauma like playing and laughing and they're going oh they bounce back they bounce back really you know easily they take things in their stride they're very resilient and it's not it it's because they can't cognitively take it all in they can't work out what's going on so they have to kind of puddle jump into it every now and again so my daughter will be absolutely fine and then I will give her a bowl of a certain color and she will absolutely lose the fucking plot I mean like trashing things and it's nothing to do with the bowl it's it's to do with the fact that she has these feelings inside and she doesn't know she's not an adult she can't say do you know what? I'm feeling really angry at the world today. Yeah. Or, or I'm really desperately sad because everyone else has got a dad at school. They don't yeah. know how to talk about that. So they just kind of like keep it together and then it will explode in different ways that seem very different. But, yeah. and that, you know, if, if kids were totally resilient, there wouldn't be so many fucked up adults. <laughs> so the accuracy, Stacey, the accuracy. <laughs> It's so funny now hearing you talk about stuff like that because that's it's only really now in the last sort of year when I've been doing more podcasts, like when just kind of Emma and I talk, like the ones with just me and her, where I can sit and be like, God, I can see now how that has affected me, like my dating life after my mum died. Like I became really just, I was just seeking attention because my mum was my biggest she was the person that gave me the attention and like the justification and told me how great I was. How old were you when she died? I was 20. Okay. She'd been, she'd had been ill for four years, bowel cancer as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, it really, like I was just going out and I, I was just sleeping around. And I, I realized now that I was doing that because I was just craving acceptance and attention from people. And I'm like, oh, he wants to sleep with me. So I must yeah. be worthy of that which is just mad I think sex is almost like a really natural reaction to Mm. death because Mm. when you are up close with death when you're with someone who is dying maybe quite slowly and you're watching the deterioration of them I think it's a really natural human reaction to to want to move towards life and there's nothing more life affirming than sex Mm. I think that's why lots of people have babies after there's some, you know, after the wars, there were like, that's where the baby boomers come from. It was this massive reaction to mass death brought like a massive baby influx because people suddenly think 
fuck, like time is short. And I mm-hmm. think, and it's, and I think also it's that to do with just sex, not having a baby, but like just the sex element. It's, it just make it makes you feel alive, doesn't it? It's that mm-hmm. carnal thing of like, I'm, when you watch someone Wild you love, free. Yeah, you watch someone you love die and part of you dies with them. And I think it's this way of being, to show yourself, like, I'm not dead. I'm not dead. I'm still alive. You're completely right. I think sex and other things that, like, for example, I love food. Like, I have a real sweet tooth. It's things that make you feel. They release something within you that reminds you that, you're alive it's exactly what you've just said it's look I'm not comparing like sex to a cherry bakewell but like in the sense of like you are <laughs> very feeling <laughs> yeah they are I would I would choose a cherry bakewell <laughs> but you are you're you're it's evoking an emotion it's a, it's an emotional response it's the feeling and it is exactly what you've just said there Stacey it makes you feel alive and you know I'm an impulsive person and I and I'm forever chasing you know highs and I don't mean highs as in big highs I mean as in I'm excited about what I'm having for my tea tonight like even those little highs about that because you are right we want to feel alive and it is those things that make us feel alive that's a big realization for me actually because I started eating and drinking alcohol like it was going out of fashion probably maybe three years ago do you know what beginning of the pandemic it was just like uh, this because I think I found with the pand- pandemic was like we had to all shield in our house. All four of us of had to shield together for six months. And I kind of felt like up until that point, I could rely on other people because it was just us that were in the middle of the hurricane and I could lean on others. But suddenly the whole world is suddenly in a crisis. Mm. And it was like, oh, shit. Who who do I who who do I rely on? Who can I lean on now? That's made me think actually what you just said about food and like that feed, bringing out a feeling. I think I was so scared all of the time that I started to rely on that what food made me feel. I love it. I'm a big foodie, and I I bought about that kind of that pleasure satiating a pleasure feeling. And also through alcohol that it made me, I drank alcohol to make me feel like I was on holiday or a night. You know, when you have like a sip of wine and you're thinking, oh, it's the, it feels like the beginning of a night out. It kind of gives you that like little Mm. carefree element. Even though I was trapped in my house in a pandemic, it, you know, sat in my garden in that heat that we had, it could mimic a feeling of being somewhere else. I bet yeah. it was that pressure as well of being like you you're supposed to be living at this point because you've got limited time left. And you're like, well, oh, so yes. living. Having a couple of glasses of wine on the weekend is gonna have to do the trick. <laughs> uh yeah. Yeah. Mm. That was very a very complicated thing to be like, Oh wow, we've only got time left and now there's a global pandemic. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> On what you were saying there, Stacey, that all all of us as human beings, and it's I'm digressing slightly, but it's one of the frustrations that I have that I feel like as a society, we're very quick to judge people, you know, oh, you, they drink or they eat or they do that. All of these things that we do 
Every human being biologically has it within them and they are natural responses to trauma. And what upsets me about society a lot of the time is I feel that, and and I know I'm generalizing, but we have this ignorance towards it. We don't actually, we don't look at the reasons why people are behaving this way. It's more just a shunning the behavior. And I think, Stacey, the fact that you're so self-aware, look, who am I to tell you this, but it, it would give me confidence, like if you were my mom, that actually the way you're going to raise me, because you're so self-aware and because you're so aware of reactions and responses to things, that you will know why your girls might behave a certain way, if they do behave a certain way, how to deal with that, or at least to sit down and ask the questions. And I don't know if that offers you any reassurance at all, because who am I to say that? But it's just an observation of you as a human being. No, no. It, re- it really, really does because I think it is, it is such a job that I feel like I don't know, mm-hmm. am I up to it? I, I don't know. So to actually hear that from someone who's been on that, on that child side, that is, that's, a, that's a big worry for me that I, will, I won't get it right. And, and also I do worry as well that I will get the brunt of everything. I must I must say that that is something I do yeah. worry about that I I remember reading years ago, years ago when I was first kind of delving into this idea of grief and what grief actually means, not what we generally think of it as, but what it actually is. And I remember reading Jeff Brazier's book, The Grief Guide, mm-hmm. and in it it said it was talking about when Jade died and with the boys and saying be prepared for your children to say to you, I hate you. I wish it was you who died. Mm. And I remember at the time being so shocked at that and so scared that that was going to happen. Obviously now my kids are older. I, they definitely said they hate me. <laughs> that's, that's definitely happened. But that whole <laughs> thing of like, I wish you had died. I, I'm not worried about it now because I understand where that would come from. I, I think, yeah, if you're telling a child they're not allowed to do something and then the, the dead parent becomes this like idyllic character mm-hmm. of like, well, dad would have let me. Dad wouldn't have said that to me. My mum got cancer when I was 12 and she died when I was 18. And if I'm being really honest, I have like hardly any memory. I think it's a defence mechanism. And that might sound ridiculous, but because I had 18 years, but honestly, I don't, she was diagnosed with M- MS and then cancer. Yeah, and it's just, it's, it's, it's frustrating. But what I just want to draw on is, you know what you said about you almost don't want him to be a martyr. In the years after mum died, she was this like godlike figure to me. But I just want to tell you that over the years, as I've experienced life as an adult and as I've in, like seen life and watched things unfold and, and understood that actually relationships aren't as straightforward and black and white as you think they are as a kid, that... In, in my experience has leveled out and I just want to let you know that that if that offers you any reassurance that I have found that actually it doesn't matter which parent it is that passed away yes that will be your response probably initially but you realize that no as you grow up you realize nobody's perfect and you realize that actually if they were here yes you would have had arguments mm-hmm. yes they would have done your head in at times because that's life and that's what human beings are like with each other yeah, that's really good. To, that's good to hear. <laughs> it's good to hear because I think it's just that that worry about the future, which I'm sure I think parents probably across the board 
if they think about the future with their kids, they might think they might worry about all different elements of their life. Like what what will happen when they get social media accounts? How will they afford life in this world? Like, like, I don't know. There's lots of things, but I think for me, because it's just me. uh, Yeah. And I suppose there is a, that's part, that's almost like a secondary loss for me that I feel a bit cheated by life that I don't get to necessarily be the parent Mm -hmm. that I want to be because I'm having to be all things Mm -hmm. to all people. I kind of, I don't know. I'm just really aware, especially because I'm dealing with my own grief and my grief tends to come out in overwhelm. I, I will, I will, be so overwhelmed with everything I have to do and everything I'm thinking of and everything I'm feeling and I will just kind of freeze almost that I can't do anything at all and then when they're in my face saying we want a snack where are we going today what are we doing with that? like <laughs> constantly I'm like I can't I, I can't cope with this I can't I, I can't do it I physically can't do it and I'm really aware of, there's like a I'm all again I'm like watching myself thinking oh like mm. I didn't used to be that parent I didn't used to, and I yeah it is like a secondary loss of feeling like I'm not gonna I don't know I, I will bring I, I'm aware I'll bring other things yeah. to the table I think this has offered me a lot in terms of parenting to do with like I've I've got very little judgment of other people now in any situation at all. Anytime someone tells me something, almost as a bit of salacious gossip of like, can you believe it? She's done this, and I'm like, let, let him live. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I I honestly I I don't care what people do as long as they're not like really hurting someone. I I don't care how people live. So I suppose that I'm bringing to the table. I'm. I'm very, it's made me more open and it it definitely has made me think I want to take more Mm. risks in life and I will encourage them to do so, to live, to really live. Everything that you've said is like very synonymous with the children left behind after the parents died is that Emma and I had a whole conversation about this the other day saying that we grieve the person that we might have been had they been alive but we're also very grateful for the person that yeah. we've become because of that situation so there is very much a double-edged sword and you kind yeah. of as you grow as you grow you grieve more but you also live more and are grateful for more and you kind of live your life in that sort of parallel which is really interesting yeah I but I it's interesting hearing you talk about that as mm-hmm. as the child because that's mm-hmm. actually exactly how I feel I I I feel like I feel like I've got a well of sadness that will never go away. That that's you know it will never it will never not be sad that Greg died, and I think it has definitely stripped me of some naivety that I had about the world um, that I I won't ever get back. And like you said, like living with that that feeling of like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop like you're constantly waiting and and because we've been through those situations you know it will happen again and like that fear of like what 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 am I going to be like when the next phone well you know when the next phone call happens um and you and knowing that it will it's not it's not it's not if it's when and um that yeah that naivety 
you you don't get rid of if you've been if you've had such a prolific death mm-hmm. i think you don't ever get rid of that stacy we ask every guest before we before we let them go to share their favorite memory or one of their favorite memories of their loved one with us are you able to share one that you have with greg oh my god what would i say um the the first one that comes to mind would be uh new year's eve before the pandemic maybe a year maybe the year before the pandemic um uh we all decided to just stay in just the four of us and we had a disco a full-on disco we had disco lights we had a karaoke machine um we had big speakers and it was just the four of us um having a full-on proper disco karaoke um just to like ridiculous (laughs) pop music that the girls loved at the time and and then me and greg were kind of like cracking out some of the songs that we wanted on and they were obviously kind of going what's this this is rubbish <laughs> and it, we were we were so into it we were just like shut <laughs> like getting, getting really into it <laughs> go do something else um yeah and it was just it was just low and um just in our like our little tiny living room and it was just great and that's what i mean about those memories about that whole idea of making memories go to disneyland uh, but actually it's um it's not about that it's it's the really small things that are that the cliche says it's the small things that are important i've actually got one more question just before we wrap up because obviously a lot of people listening to this the majority of our audience are people like us that have lost a parent or parents or a parental figure you as a surviving parent what do you think is one thing that you hope to hear from your children when they're older that will offer you some comfort i know exactly what it is oh it makes you quite emotional thinking about it um i really really hope that as time goes on they will be able to say that we know that you did your best in in everything that you did at that time i think like Dali, our eldest daughter, says to me a lot, there mu- out of the blue, she'll suddenly say, there must have been something. There must have been something that someone could do. Why couldn't they just cut him open and just operate and cut all the cancer out and then do him back up? Mm. And I was like, that's not how it works. And then she hears of other people that have had cancer that that did work on. So, it, yeah, and... Yeah, I hope that I hope that when she finds out about all the different things that happened over the years that um that she will see that I did I did my best and that actually they were at the heart of all of my decisions. All of my decisions to be very public in talking about stuff, trying to make it more common that people talk about grief. Um I hope that they see that 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 was ultimately for them because one, I don't want them to grow up in a society where everything is so closed down and people have to suffer alone. But also I want to think that I'm an example of showing up. I'd like to, I I want to be a role model for them 
of like just having to run with the the cards that you're dealt and that is going to happen to everyone we're all going to be dealt really hard cards in our life and I, I hope that they might see that as an example I just wanted to say I think however you approach the next 10 15 20 years with with those children I think if you can talk to them like you've talked to us you will honestly it will make such a huge huge difference because that's all anybody wants is to an open conversation because it's human connection after all and I think if you can do that I've got no doubt that you will do the best that you possibly can do whatever that looks like definitely thank you I just want to echo that that Kat said Stacey because actually just talking to you it's the first time really that I think I've heard it from a perspective like yours and you've opened my Mm -hmm. eyes and I know that when that phone call happens in my life I'll draw on this conversation with you to help me Mm -hmm. and that's a huge compliment because that's how much I've taken from you today so thank you I'm sorry that it's under the circumstances that it is but thank you thank you I've never been so close to tears in an episode so many times (laughs) Uh, yeah, oh god oh my god <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank um, you no it's do you know what this this is such a this is a really really emotive conversation for me because i i talk so openly and so often about things that have happened to me but i think the things that i find the the hardest mm-hmm. is the stuff about the girls and the impact on them and and actually to to meet women who are like dealing with all of their feelings so beautifully and in this very open space that gives other people comfort that gives me comfort to think okay my children are not going to be just fucked up um we're, uh, we're a little bit spicy they, they can live <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and there there will be many challenges, as I'm sure you are testament to. I imagine that you've had to experience all sorts of stuff because of the death of your mums. But, yeah, thank you so much for, for, for having this space because I think, I just think we need more people talking about this stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Honestly, I appreciate it. No end. Thank you so much, Stacey. Oh, it's a pleasure. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 